Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today is not a normal vault day, but uh, to help us get through a few things this week, we are bringing you a vault episode, but it's a really good one. This is uh, an episode of the Invention podcast that we did about the invention of ketchup. If you never listened to Invention, Rob and I did this whole other show uh, for for a few years a while back uh, called Invention. Mm -hmm. It was about inventions, and uh, this is one of my most fondly remembered uh, explorations. This episode originally published... On September 29th, 2019. Yeah, I think about this episode every time I use ketchup, and I hope that you do as well. Oh, but also never fear, we will be back with all all new, fresh content for you starting tomorrow and for the rest of the week. So uh, we'll see you then. Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we have a sweet episode for you. We have a salty episode for you. We have a, uh, a relatively slow-flowing kind of uh, <laughs> kind of stodgy episode for yeah, you. Yeah, a nice thick episode for you. Uh-huh. Uh, because today's episode is about ketchup, which uh, I, I just want to go ahead and put it out there. This is going to be far more interesting Far more complex and, and a little bit con- more confusing than you might uh, anticipate. Uh-huh. You know, I was wondering if we should start by confessing the strange things that we put ketchup on because you just assume everybody has some strange thing they put ketchup on. But I realize I am so boring when it comes to ketchup. They go on fries. They're for French fries. I put – today – these days I put ketchup on French fries if I have them. I mm-hmm. put them on tater tots if I have them. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? That's Those are the main things really um, if I'm making a – my own cocktail sauce. Obviously, obviously, I use ketchup as the uh, the base for that. Right. But um, yeah, aside from that, I, I did. I don't think I ever had any strange ketchup habits uh, growing up. I would. I think I would occasionally take a baked potato and cut it up into rounds and mm-hmm. put ketchup on that. Nice. With to with to the at least slight disapproval, I think, of the rest of the table. But my argument was: Look, this is essentially the same as French fries. We put ketchup on French fries. I'm just doing this to my baked potato instead of covering it in butter and sour cream and what have you. How about you, Seth? Do you put ketchup on soft serve? <laughs> He says no. <laughs> <laughs> my my son doesn't even put uh, ketchup on anything, and he's certainly at that age where you see a lot of uh, you know strange ketchup or even sort of ketchup first strategies. Uh-huh. Like one I've definitely seen before, and maybe I did see him do this when he was younger. Uh, it was like t- take a French fry, mm-hmm. dip it in the ketchup, lick the ketchup off the French fry, Ugh. dip the the French fry again, and essentially use the French fry as a soggy uh, delivery system for uh-huh. that sweet. Uh, you know, sweet and, and vinegary and salty, uh, you know, overpowering taste uh, profile that is ketchup. You know, I was looking at the Heinz website earlier today and I found one page where they were like, uh, uh, they were trying to, I think, advertise the benefits of ketchup beyond just it tasting good. And they were like, you can use ketchup to get your kids to eat healthy foods. Just put ketchup <laughs> on healthy foods and then they'll eat them. And I was thinking, I don't know what. How exactly does that work? You put ketchup on spinach, and then they eat the spinach. You put it on sweet potatoes, and I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't have, have a lot of room to, to talk on this because my my son is fortunately has always been a very good eater. Uh-huh. But I can imagine if you're having if you're struggling, just trying to get any food uh, into a, a young child, you you would you would turn to putting ketchup on just about anything to make it happen. Mm-hmm. 
You know, we don't want to vilify ketchup today because ketchup already in many ways has a pretty bad reputation, especially among foodies and, you know, people of sophisticated palates. I think sometimes look at ketchup as a thing that's just uh, ruining the culinary world. It's it's worldwide global homogeneity in, in cuisine. Uh, it makes everything taste the same. It just crushes individual flavor profiles of foods. It signals that, like, you don't want to taste anything for itself. Yeah, generally it's considered an insult to to uh, reach for or ask for the ketchup when you order something at a really nice restaurant or even just a, a passably nice <laughs> restaurant. Um, un- unless, of course, you have ordered the burger and fries or some sort of manner of fries and it comes with, say, a, uh, a house-made ketchup right. uh, that is exclusively used for, uh, for, for dipping. But then again, you get French fries uh, at, a, at a nicer place. They're probably going to have some other dipping options that are also fantastic mm-hmm. that deviate from the, the standard ketchup uh, trope. Yeah, smoked tomato mayonnaise or something. Yeah, that sort of thing. And certainly we have more condiment uh, possibilities available to us now because but, – but for the longest, like ketchup, you know, like that's what we grew up with. You mm-hmm. know, the, the ketchup is what you got at all the fast food restaurants. And today you go to just about any restaurant and there will be ketchup there. Um, it's going to be there in pumps, in bottles, in packets, in slices even. Well, I don't know how many restaurants are really um, – leaning on the ketchup slices. But ketchup slices do exist. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, they're like the craft singles, basically, but yeah. it's ketchup. Basically, someone said, you know that, you know, the, the hardened dried ketchup that uh, coagulates around the, the cap? What if I had a whole slice of that? Uh, wouldn't that be great? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it is great. I have not tried it. But we're, that's what we're going to be talking about today is is the world of ketchup. Where does it come from? What is it and, and why, uh, why is it so potent? Why is it so powerful? It's something we all take for granted, but it has an interesting story. So what is ketchup usually made of today? When you get tomato ketchup in a bottle, your standard stuff, it, you know, the, not the weird kind, just the standard ketchup you get at the store or at the diner. When we think of ketchup and we think of that, that thick red uh, stuff that you squeeze out of a um, out of a bottle. You're generally talking about uh, tomato sauce, sugar or another sweetener, vinegar, salt, and some sort of proprietary uh, uh, blend of spices and seasonings. Mm-hmm. Uh, industrial additives, maybe preservatives, yeah. something like that. Yeah, and I think commonly your tomato element and your sugar element are probably going to be tomato paste and. High fructose corn syrup. Yeah. High fructose corn syrup has, of course, become the standard, especially here in the United States. But that being said, and as we'll touch on later, like you can find a lot of ketchups on the market, including ones from Heinz that uh, that are sweetened, say, with, uh, with with the sugar or honey or reduced sugar and honey. You know, it, uh, there are plenty of other options out there now. When In previous uh, decades, though, I think it was, it was pretty much you had the one choice, right? Right. So when we when we dip a French fry in ketchup, or we put ketchup on our uh, you know our our burgers, our hot dogs, our wontons, whatever you're you're putting it on, you know it brings that blessed sweet, sour, and salty taste to any bite. So it's it's potent stuff. It delivers several things that we as organisms are hardwired to crave. 
uh, and, and crave it, we do. That's why you see some serious pump abuse sometimes at your local fast food restaurants, you know, where they'll, they'll, they'll fill up not one cup, not two, but maybe three or four just to make sure they're, mm-hmm. they're covering uh, all their ground. They're, you know, they have all their options available to them. Or just pump it all over top a big pile of fries. Yeah. Some people do that. I'm, I'm not of that school. I'm a dipper, not a drizzler. Yeah, I prefer to – because if it's drizzled, you're going to end up with that one French fry that is, that is drowned and lost mm-hmm. to the ketchup. Um, but then again, I think that has a benefit as you uh, – you know, as many of us become a little wiser as we get older and we realize we should not eat all the French fries. Better <laughs> that some of the French fries drown and become inedible than to actually polish off the entire plate. But again, ketchup has a, an overpowering at times flavor profile. Uh, it, it goes really well with certain things, obviously. Uh, and, it's, uh, and it's good to have an overpowering uh, flavor profile if you're eating something that is, say, less than appetizing. Um, but it's certainly going to insult the chef if you reach for it when you're having uh, you know, something that has a very delicate and planned out flavor profile itself. And something I should say in addition to – so you mentioned that ketchup tends it, – it's got this trio of flavors that we like in a lot of sauces. Mm-hmm. It's got sweetness. It's got uh, acidity or sourness and it's got saltiness. But it's also got this other thing that's harder to define. It's the, the umami flavor. It comes yes. from the tomatoes, you know, from the tomatoes, from the fermentation. Uh, it, it's this savory, you know, deliciousness kind of quality that that's a little bit um, – it's not as sharp or as easily noticeable as – the other three types of flavors, but you really value it in many foods that you like. And so it shouldn't come as a surprise that, especially in the United States, it has become such a popular condiment. Uh, I, I see that the, the number kind of varies, but for instance, uh, in a 2014 article from uh, on, on the National Geographic website, How Was Ketchup Invented by Jasmine Wiggins, uh, the author cites 97% of American households report having a bottle of the stuff around. That is a, I mean, that's a huge number. That's a huge number. I've seen it I've seen it higher uh, generally by ketchup companies, and I've also seen it a little lower. Uh-huh. But, I mean, it, uh, you know, without, you know, arguing over the exact number, like, it is a very widespread condiment, uh, uh-huh. not only here, but now, you know, in various places around the world. But yet there was a time before ketchup. There was a time when there was no ketchup. And uh, we're going to begin our journey by, by traveling back in time. Let's get some time travel sound effects. Can we, can we bloop, 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 bloop or something? All right. Well, so we're traveling back. Yes, we're seeking that time before ketchup. Was there a time before ketchup? Yes, but also no. Uh, <laughs> because I told you this is going to be uh, a little more confusing than you might think. Because in a large sense, we have to consider the legacy of, of the condiment, of the sauce itself, and to think about its inception. You know, what, what does it mean to put a sauce on something? Mm-hmm. Like what is – what is ketchup itself? You know, what is, what is it essentially doing? And it's pointed out in Pure Ketchup, A History of America's National Condiment with Recipes by Andrew F. Smith, who, uh, who we'll keep coming back to because uh, Andrew seems to be the, uh, one of the primary authorities on the history of ketchup. Yeah, he, out there. he's like the world ketchup lore master. Yeah. He's he's the Elrond or the Saruman of ketchup. Yes. Uh, But according to Smith, humans have attempted to preserve foods with salt for thousands of years. It uh, retards the growth of bacteria and salt and water um, used like this, uh, you know, is is known as brining. Brine something just right and certain uh, species of bacteria produce lactic acid, which kills off harmful bacteria and lowers the pH. It also creates an environment uh, suitable for fermentation and this changes the flavor. Yeah. 
Yeah. This pickling. Yeah. And of course, we have pickling traditions in cultures just around the world. Mm-hmm. And we could easily do an entire episode just on pickling and food oh. preservation. That, that, I think we will. Yeah. That, that in and of itself is a, is a fascinating topic, especially when you get into all the varied forms of it, mm-hmm. um, from uh, like burying a bunch of dead birds <laughs> in the earth, <laughs> uh, you know, to, well, the, the earth does play a role in a number of different fermentation uh, uh, strategies that were developed. The idea uh-huh. of taking something, taking a few ingredients, bundling it away in the darkness of the earth, and then bringing it back up when you need it, when the, the, the time of the harvest has grown cold. But as uh, Smith points out, uh, fermented sauces were certainly used by ancient peoples to enhance flavors in their food, uh, as well as, and this is key, to hide unpleasant odors. Yeah. Because... Uh, you know, a lot of times, especially in, in the ancient world uh, or any time prior to our, our modern age of, of, of food abundance and food waste, you, know, you often had, you had what you had. And uh, sometimes it might not smell that pleasant or taste that pleasant, but it was what was for dinner. Uh, it was the meal, and you had to choke it down one way or the other. Uh, and so you might need to cover up the underlying flavor or odor. So That's the, when a bottle of ketchup would have come in real handy back then. Exactly. And they didn't quite have ketchup, certainly. But the Greeks and the Romans used uh, something called garum, Smith says, which uh, was a fermented fish sauce that was itself a byproduct of salting tons of f- fish as a means of preserving those fish. Yeah, and there are modern analogs of, of garum. There's in Italian cuisine, there's this stuff called colatura. That's this, you know, salty fermented mm-hmm. fish sauce flavor that's delicious. In Asian cuisines, you've got various forms of fish sauce, yeah. like nam pla. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oyster sauces, etc. Yeah, exactly. So you take some seafood, you'd heavily salt it, and you get an extract from it. Um, that is this funky, highly savory, umami-rich, salty kind of thing. And it's great. You know, that stuff is great not just in the, you know, the cuisines it's traditionally associated with, but chefs today use, for example, Southeast Asian-style fish sauce in all kinds of things. You'll find uh, chefs putting uh, Thai fish sauce in beef stews and in chili and bolognese and everything, anywhere you want to, like, boost the beefy flavor of food. And they vary a lot, uh, not only in their their flavor, but also in their consistency. You yeah, know, some are very thick; others are very watery. Uh, and and I always, any any time you visit, um, uh, you know, a, a new um, you know Asian restaurant, mm-hmm. do try all of the sauces, especially the ones <laughs> you are not familiar with, um, just to, to get a good, uh, you know, a good uh, you know overall of the taste sensations available. Totally. So, yes, obviously we have a, a wealth of pickling traditions from around the world, though, uh, as uh, Smith points out, in, medi- in the medieval world, in the medieval European world, the byproduct of those pickling endeavors were often just discarded instead of being reutilized as some sort of a sauce. Hmm. Um, and uh, I have to say that my, my son does not adhere to this uh, as he loves to drink down the pickle juice from the pickle <laughs> jar. Uh, he'll drink down the sardine oil from the sardine can. Uh-huh. Uh, he, is, uh, he, he, does, he does not waste any of it. Uh, well, first of all, I can sympathize because, of course, pickles are delicious and, and that liquid, therefore, is also somewhat delicious. Uh, but second, th- this brings up – I don't even know if we should get into this. This is oh, – We probably should. S- okay. <laughs> I don't want to spend half an hour talking about this, but I just had to mention my favorite article of all time from my hometown newspaper. The Chattanooga Times Free Press hit, caught in a pickle, Chattanooga attorney, comma, friends, explains strange addiction. <laughs> and it's about people who can't stop drinking pickle juice. The, the main figure 
in this article is a local lawyer who tells these stories about how when he's driving home from work, he would stop at the grocery store and he'd get a jar of pickles. He'd take them <laughs> out to his car and he'd dump all the pickles out in the parking lot and just guzzle down all the juice. But now he's figured out that the smarter and more economical thing is just to buy jugs of pickle juice, like dill pickle juice, oh, wow. by itself. You can order it from – I don't know, various manufacturers. I guess some people just add their cucumbers straight to dill pickle juice. Uh, but uh, there are these accompanying photos on the Times Free Press website of this guy posing with a gallon jug of dill pickle brine. Like it's a <laughs> prestigious award. Yes, I love this. Uh, this I mean, I've, I've – I've read articles about like people who are s- such fermentation enthusiasts mm-hmm. that they and, and sometimes they you know they they back this up with arguments about the you know the health benefits of fermented products and and they'll they'll sometimes take on a, like a very fermentation heavy diet. Mm-hmm. But I also have heard just anecdotal uh, accounts. I think my my aunt was really into kraut juice mm-hmm. uh, for for a long time uh, and maybe still is. Just uh, for just because she liked it or for like uh, like health remedy kind of I think it was things. because she just liked the the, the flavor. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I love pickles too. I, I don't go that far, but yeah. It reminds me of the, the Hannibal Burris uh, stand-up comedy bit where he's talking about uh, saving the jar of pickles, pickle juice after all the pickles are gone so that he can flick it uh, onto his grilled cheese sandwich. I don't know this bit. Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah, it sounds smart. Yeah, like it basically, it's like a it's it's a a bit about roommates and not mm. wanting the roommate to throw out the uh, the pickle juice because the pickle stu- juice still has use. <laughs> it can still be flicked onto, uh, and and I think that this gets down to what we're talking about here. Like, yes, right. the 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 resulting uh, pickle juice is still uh, still packs flavor. It can still be used to enhance other foods. So even though the you know in, in the medieval uh, uh, European world. People weren't that into saving their um, their food preparation juices. Uh, still, you had traditions of creating sauces. From uh, early Greek times onward, Europeans made sauces that were based uh, in large part on vinegar, ranging, for, ranging from the simple to the complex. And they grew very complex uh, in Elizabethan Britain. Uh, sauce, after all, is where we get the, the saucer from, uh, which is, of course, ends up being so vitally connected with the tea culture uh, that, uh, that grows out of uh, Britain. It's actually for sauce? I had no idea. Uh, yeah, this according to our ketchup expert, uh, Andrew F. Smith. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I don't mean this is a slam against British food, but if you are sometimes going to be consuming, I don't know, say largely bland foods in your diet, sauces mm-hmm. are clearly going to become pretty popular. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he points out that in uh, Robert May's 1685 book, The Accomplished Cook, uh, the author lists 13 sauce categories, and each of those sauce categories can contain upwards of a dozen different sauces that you can make to, say, put on your mutton. Yeah. Now, I don't know how this lines up historically with the, the French sauce tradition, but obviously that's a huge thing as well. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the French have all these uh, – French high cuisine has this whole f- – family system of sauces, like sauces that you make and then the sauces that are derived from those sauces, the mother sauces and mm-hmm. the, the sauces you make out of them. For example, you might make like a, a French brown sauce and then from that can be derived these vinegar-based changes. Uh, it's very complex. 
So that's the the European theater, roughly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then uh, also, of course, uh, you know, across uh, across the the continent, uh, across Eurasia, uh, you have a uh, different uh, traditions going on. Um, salted and fermented fish sauces are an ancient tra- uh, part of Southeast Asia, and as well, and uh, you know, they're they're too are numerous and varied in their flavor and consistency. Uh, for instance, in uh, in China, the soybean was domesticated uh, uh, by roughly uh, twenty eight thirty. BCE, and eventually soy sauce springs from this, Right, uh, one of the great sauces of, of human creation. The ultimate savory condiment. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, eventually the, the Western and Eastern kingdoms of the sauce eventually meet. And uh, during the 16th and 17th centuries, British and European sailors were uh, introduced to and impressed by the various soy and fish sauces and sauces that, that they inevitably didn't even really know, you know, what the ingredients were. Mm-hmm. They just knew that when you put it on food, it was amazing. And they no doubt, um, you know, were enthralled by the possibility of bringing these sauces back to, to spice up things at home that uh, were either bland or had grown bland uh, to their now, uh, you know, excited palate. And, uh, and yeah, so they encountered these things on their voyages. Smith writes, quote, from this culinary crucible of salted, pickled, and fermented foods from ancient Europe and exotic Southeast Asia, British ketchup materialized during the 18th century. All right, it's time to take a break, but we'll be right back with more on the history of ketchup. All right, we're back. Okay, Joe, who invented the ketchup? Was it Sir Carmichael Ketchup? <laughs> was it um, was it Baron von Ketchup? There have been names proposed by various food historians over the years, but these these proposals are definitely wrong. <laughs> uh, like we just know for a fact. Like uh, we don't know the inventor of the original ketchup, but if, as we've been explaining somewhat, the, the question of ketchup's inventor is fraught anyway because the sauce has evolved so much over time. So where do you put the inventor? Uh, ketchup seems to be a long lineage of copies of copies of types of sauces. And so the origins of ketchup bear very little resemblance to the sauce that's sold under that name in most of the world today. But nevertheless, we will do our best to trace the origins of how that sauce came to be. So when you think about the characteristics of ketchup, uh, Andrew F. Smith points this out, and I think he's correct. You try to think of the three main characteristics of ketchup. You'd probably think that it's something that's thick, something that is sweet, and something that is made from tomatoes, right? Yes, and of course also just vitally red. Yeah. Like so red that that it, it often in our you know, comedies and uh, you know, cartoons, it is a substitute for human blood. Yes, uh, and so the origins of ketchup possess probably none of these qualities at all. Not made from tomatoes, not sweet, not thick, not red. Uh, and so in his book, in, in Pure Ketchup, Andrew F. Smith relays a number of competing theories about the origins of ketchup, most of which we now know are almost definitely wrong. A lot of the older origin stories lie in Europe, like, for example, that ketchup comes from the English word cavitch, uh, which is a type of fish pickled in vinegar, This uh, and the idea that this is a cognate for the French term escabeche, which means like food and sauce, or the Spanish escabeche. Uh, this theory is now considered incorrect. It seems generally agreed that ketchup, as we were saying before the break, 
comes from some kind of tradition of Asian cuisine. But while that's pretty well established, it gets harder to pin down in more definite ways. In 1877, somebody named Aeneas Dallas speculated that uh, the word ketchup comes from a Japanese word, kitjap, K-I-T-J-A-P. However, this does not seem to be an actual Japanese word or even a possible Japanese <laughs> word. Uh, that that formation does not come together in Japanese syllables. Um, it's also been speculated to have come from a Malay word, uh, K-E-C-A-P. I'm not sure how that would have been pronounced, maybe ketchup. Uh, however, this also seems unlikely. I think among food historians, the favored theory now, as originally put forth by the editors of the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, seems to be that the English word ketchup has Chinese origins and that it really comes from ketchup, quote, a word from the Amoy dialect of Chinese meaning the brine of pickled fish. Mm. So this would give it a fish origin, though I've seen other origins I'll mention in a second. Smith notes that an ethnologist named Terrien de la Couperie has argued that while the word is Chinese, it does not appear to have come from the Chinese mainland and that uh, this scholar thinks it more likely emerged from Chinese speakers living elsewhere in Southeast Asia, such as in Vietnam, and that the British probably first came into contact with this sauce and the name of this sauce somewhere in what is today Indonesia. Mm. Now, I was also reading about the origins of ketchup from the uh, Oxford Encyclopedia of Food and Drink in America, and that's from uh, OUP, uh, edited by Bruce Craig from 2013. The editors there – oh, also, I should say that the entry is by Andrew F. Smith, who <laughs> yet again apparently just seems to be the ketchup master. But this entry is more recent than his book, so I would imagine it incorporates you know more recent sources and, and scholarship on that. The, the editors here and Smith seem to still be going with the idea of the Chinese language origins story for the term ketchup. They, they think it comes from ketchup, and it would refer to a savory fermented sauce. Here, though, they say not made out of fish, but made out of soybeans. Mm. Um, so I'm not sure. There seem to be these competing theories about whether this sauce would have been fish-based or soybean-based or maybe both, but there does seem to be general agreement that this was some kind of very umami-rich, savory kind of sauce. And uh, fermented soybeans in, in salt or brine provide a fantastic savory flavor in many forms. We've talked about fish-based sauces like garum or whatever. But uh, but soybean-based sauces are uh, amazing. Of course, soy sauce, the ultimate savory condiment, is brewed with soybeans and usually some kind of roasted grain. But that's not the only one. You've also got, for example, uh, miso in Japanese cuisine, which is a seasoning often in a paste form that gets made from fermented soybeans and other varying ingredients like koji. You know, uh, this make, reminds me, you know, you'll occasionally see sort of, uh, you know, loose time travel uh, arguments where someone will say, hey, if you were able to bring back, uh, you know, six machine guns in a time machine and go back uh, to, the, to, to ancient Rome, could you conquer the Roman Empire? <laughs> I, I think of an even more interesting uh, question is if you were to bring back like a single um, uh, caddy of spices and, and sauces from, say, your local uh, Vietnamese restaurant uh, uh, or, or Thai restaurant. Could you conquer the could British con Empire? <laughs> could you conquer, yeah, any empire of, uh, of, of uh, the, the British Empire or, or certainly the Roman Empire. The uh -huh. Romans were, were big foodies. They were all about exploring new flavors. Uh, but if you were to present them with this, uh, would you have the upper hand? At least until you ran out anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe instead you should bring like a, a soy sauce brewery along with you right, or something. Right, yes. A few, a few recipes, secret recipes in code. 
yeah. So uh, Smith writes anyway that the British colonists and traders uh, would have come into contact with sauces of these kinds either maybe while in China or, as we were saying earlier, maybe more likely uh, somewhere in Indonesia. And then they tried to duplicate the flavor once they came back home but without access to the crucial ingredient, at least in one branch of this theory, of soybeans. <laughs> yeah, I love the idea that they've, they've brought their uh, this this precious sauce back with them and they've used it up. They've, you know, they've, 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 They've beat on the the butt of the bottle. They've, uh-huh. they've 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 used their knife to get as much out as possible. They've they've added hot water and shaken it up, and then poured the the remnants onto their food. But now they are out, and they must try somehow to create it again with uh, the limited resources that they have. So it's like people doing the copycat recipes. The yeah. same way today, you'll find somebody with a blog who's like, "Here's my uh, here's my Chick fil A chicken sandwich recipe." Yes. You know, that make it home instead of going there. Mm-hmm. You, that's what. The they would do with this sauce. And uh, another one of the, the reasons I was thinking about the, this origin in Southeast Asia and in uh, Indonesia is uh, you mentioned earlier that Nat Geo article by uh, Jasmine Wiggins that it cites as an example of an early ketchup recipe in English, a recipe published by an author named Richard Bradley in 1732 for something called ketchup in paste, which said that the sauce came from, quote, Binkulin in the East Indies. Mm. And I think this must be referring to an area of the of British Binkulin, which is spelled differently than it is here in this citation, but uh, would have been pronounced the same, I guess. And it's this coastal region of Sumatra around the area of today's Bengkulu City, which is, of course, in the country of Indonesia. But anyway, wherever this comes from, it's somewhere over there, and the British bring it back to Britain. And they've they've tasted this awesome savory sauce. It's got this salty umami punch. Maybe it's made out of fish. Maybe it's made out of soybeans. Maybe both. Uh, but they want to eat it again when they're back home. Like you said, they've emptied out the bottle. It's all gone. And and you lack a crucial ingredient, perhaps. Maybe, you know, you or you don't know what the crucial ingredients are, so you just try to do this copycat. <laughs> so the British traditions actually have plenty of alternatives alternative umami bomb ingredients that they could substitute to try to recreate this flavor. Uh, One, for example, would be anchovies. Another would be oysters. Uh, Another would be mushrooms. Mushrooms are a great umami-rich, savory ingredient. If you you want to boost that kind of flavor in something, try adding dried mushrooms to it. I've also read that they tried kidney beans and walnuts, though that's weird. I've never thought of kidney beans or walnuts as umami-rich in flavor, but maybe I don't think of them right. Yeah, and so they used all of these ingredients in their various British ketchups. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Wiggins also points out that Jane Austen, the acclaimed uh, author, uh, is said to have been a big fan of mushroom ketchup uh-huh. in particular. Uh, but again, most of these ketchups are thin and dark. So dismiss any notions of Jane Austen nimbly snacking on French fries and bright red ketchup. Right. No, yeah, it probably would have been something closer to like – Worcestershire sauce or mm-hmm. soy sauce or maybe the English condiment known as brown sauce. You know about brown sauce, Robert? Uh, no, is it like a gravy? Is that what – because that's what I'm imagining. It's kind of like a poutine uh, you know, gravy. No, I mean it's like a type of bottled sauce. I mean actually I think technically within the bounds of what we're talking about historically today, it sort of is a ketchup. It's hmm. not tomato-based. Uh, English brown sauce, there's this brand I think that's called Daddy's Favorite Sauce. It's kind of weird. <laughs> Uh, I think there's also HP sauce that might sort of be uh, a brown sauce. It's sort of a 
uh, a, a tart, savory, fermented kind of sauce. It's brown in color. It's got vinegar. It's got spices. Um, and people put it on, you know, breakfast, like on your, your full English breakfast. Oh, eating some okay, eggs yes. and sausage I and baked beans. I don't know that I've had it, but I, I have seen brown sauce mentioned. Yeah. Uh, so uh, basically I think brown sauce is in line with what would have been considered ketchup at this time. Uh, by the way, speaking of French fries, I do want to point out that while Jane Austen would not have been having uh, bright red tomato ketchup, mm-hmm. she could have possibly had French fries mm-hmm. uh, because uh, T- Thomas Jefferson was serving them at the White House at roughly the same time. Really? Yeah, or something that was referred to as potatoes served in the French manner, <laughs> which uh, some commentators have taken to be French fries. Because, I mean, essentially, uh, you know, there's, French fries are a, a simple concept. Uh-huh. Um, and then once you've had them, you will you know, want to serve them at the highest levels of government. Uh, so I would love to see uh, a restaurant titled Jane Austen's House of Traditional English Ketchups and Potatoes Served in the French Manner. <laughs> Why does something sound kind of sinister about that? Potatoes served in the French Manner. Yeah, it sounds you know, potentially um, um, infectious uh, or, or taboo, <laughs> you know. Right. So I hear you like uh, potatoes, but do you like potatoes in the French Manner? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Okay, but we're still – so here we've got various things that are referred to as ketchups in British cuisine derived probably from original savory sauces in Asian cuisine made out of all kinds of different stuff, mushrooms, oysters, anchovies, walnuts, beans. And so how do we get from that to the the ketchup that we were talking about at the beginning of the episode as being considered synonymous with American food, you know, American fast food especially? Well, so British colonists brought their interpretations of ketchup with them to America, where the recipe experiments, of course, continued over the years. It didn't just stop evolving there. And Smith notes that beans and apples were tried out as major ingredients of ketchup. Um, and of course, we got to get to the tomato somehow. And here, the the line of connection is getting a lot clearer because the tomato is a New World berry, originally cultivated by the native peoples of Central and South America. And the tomato is also like anchovies, like mushrooms, like the fermented soybeans, rich in savory umami flavors. So already we can see ketchup as a true product of international trade, mm-hmm. inspired by Asian culinary traditions, interpreted by Europeans using the natural bounty of the Americas. Yeah. And and I think it's not surprising at all that you start to see tomatoes showing up as a main ingredient in ketchup recipes in the United States in the early 1800s. Uh, for example, an early published recipe for tomato ketchup, maybe the earliest one, was written by the American horticulturist and scientist James Meese, who was living in Philadelphia in the year 1812. And Meese referred to tomatoes in this recipe as love apples, <laughs> which is a term from the French, the Palm de Mor, apparently the apple of love, which is interesting to me because it's parallel to the French term for potatoes, palm de terre, or the apples of the earth. Huh. And that makes me wonder, are there other French phrases of the, just anything that was previously unfamiliar in the language is apples of something like it? Well, especially with the tomato, it makes sense, right? You're suddenly presented with this new food. Uh, what's your frame of reference for something that looks like this? Uh-huh. Uh, you might turn to the apple and say, oh, it's this, it's this strange apple that came from, uh, from the new world. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it has a totally different flavor profile. Let's uh, start cooking with it. Of course, then again, I think also in Italian, tomato is pomodoro. And I think the origin of that is, the, uh, is golden apple. Huh. Yeah. 
But I do love that the apple of love. When you have a really good tomato, uh, oh. I believe that title is appropriate. Oh, absolutely. But what what would the French word for peppers be? Peppers also a new world uh, uh, crop genus that brought over the capsicum. Would it be uh, apple apples of burning? <laughs> anyway, uh, Mises' recipe for ketchup involved a tomato pulp base and brandy, but did not include common ingredients you'd find today like vinegar or sugar. Now, of <laughs> course, tomatoes naturally have both sweetness and and acidity, but sugar and vinegar, I think, are used to boost those natural qualities and also for their preservative powers. And also, just to be perfectly clear, Mises' recipe here would not have been the first tomato-based sauce by a long shot. I mean, people were using tomatoes in sauces. It would just be one of the first known times that tomato becomes the backbone of a sauce that people are calling ketchup. Right. Uh, because I think this is more of a modern thing, but I've when, when you have like alleged pizza sauce, um, an alleged um, pasta sauce from like a very like fast food oriented Italian restaurant. Mm -hmm. I will not name names, but sometimes they are provided uh, here in the office. And uh, and I taste it. And I'm like, this is essentially ketchup. This yes. is not pasta sauce. This is not. Uh, this is this is nothing like spaghetti sauce. This is essentially ketchup. Nothing says the old country like noodles boiled for 25 minutes and ketchup <laughs> and lots of cheese. So at this point, the stage is set for for, for what is largely the next phase of, um, of food preparation, and that is industrial food preparation. Yeah, exactly. So throughout the 19th century, industrial food production and packaging increased, uh, and there were multiple types of ketchup sold throughout the United States at this point, especially after the Civil War. And at this point, tomato ketchup was still only one of these major varieties of ketchup. But by the end of the 19th century, I think at this point – the conquest of tomato ketchup was complete. So it sort of happened over the course of the 1800s. Uh, the, the conquest was complete in a couple of ways, both in terms of becoming the primary variety of ketchup found on tables and kitchens was now tomato ketchup, but also in surpassing other condiments and sauces in popularity in general. And Smith notes that in 1896, an article in the New York Tribune called Tomato Ketchup America's National Condiment <laughs> and referred to the fact that it was found, quote, on every table in the land. So it sounds like by the turn of the 20th century, tomato ketchup had reached a level of popularity close to what it enjoys today in the United States. But how it was used at the time, I think, was somewhat different. Smith reports that in line with its traditional uses, up through the turn of the 20th century, the, the main uses for tomato ketchup included, uh, quote, as an ingredient for savory pies and sauces mm. and to enhance the flavor of meat, poultry, and fish. So I think it's more the idea that if your chicken is bland, you boost the flavor with some umami-rich tomato ketchup. Or if your gravy is weak, you get some ketchup in there in the gravy and it'll sort of boost the flavor a bit. If your weenies are lacking, you just add ketchup and, uh, and grape jelly. And cook them up in a crock pot. That sort of thing. Uh, what are you talking about? Oh, like that's like that's cocktail weenies, right? The really, yeah, like the grape sort of, jelly. I yeah. didn't know that. Well, that was, I believe, that's the recipe I remember seeing um, and sort of being horrified by. Uh, it seems like you'd want more ingredients in your your. Your, your cocktail weenie sauce. Well, do you, do you know about currywurst, this no. German food? No. That's, it's basically little uh, sausages cut up in ketchup with curry powder. Hmm. That's, that's basically it. 
And this is something you make or something you purchase in a can? I think it's like a, a German kind of fast food. I don't huh. want okay. to slander German cuisine. But well, I, I mean, curry has uh, is, is certainly a, another one of those flavors, flavor profiles that has conquered the world, becoming, mm-hmm. uh, of course, basically curries uh, have become an essential part of, of English cuisine. Yeah. Curries have become a, a very popular part of modern Japanese cuisine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and curry can be found, uh, you know, th- throughout the United States in various cuisines. Oh, you go into a traditional English chip shop, you'll find that, you know, you can get the tartar sauce or you can get the curry sauce yeah. at a lot of them. So basically what you're getting at, though, is that the use of ketchup at the time was, was more uh, as, a, as, an, as a catch-all sauce, an ingredient sauce. Yeah. Uh, and so I think it was later in the 20th century that ketchup became most associated with what Smith calls its three major host foods. <laughs> can, can you guess what these are? Well, uh, we've already touched on French fries. Right. And, um, I mean, the other big one that comes to mind is, of course, the fast food hamburger. Of course. There you go. That mm-hmm. makes sense. Uh, of course, the third one is the hot dog. <laughs> this is controversial. And on one hand, I don't want to be that jerk that tells other people what to eat or how to eat. Except right now, I, I always get that feeling about this one topic in particular – which is that if you're going to eat a hot dog, a hot dog has a very natural heavenly soulmate, and that soulmate is mustard. Mm. Ketchup on hot dogs seems like a strange betrayal to me. Hmm. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't, I don't have a real firm opinion. When I have mm. a, a veggie dog these days, I tend to have uh, mustard. Yeah, I mm. tend to put sauerkraut on it. Sauerkraut's a great choice. Yeah, and I also like a little horseradish. Mm. That seems stranger, but I'd be willing to try that. Yeah, I, I, I've gotten to where I, I, I like horseradish on just about anything. Like mm. it's a good, uh, it's a good, good way to like spice it up and make sure I get that uh, that blasting moment. Like un, like where I kind of poison myself, where I don't know which bite it's going to be, but I know one of the bites I take of this uh, veggie dog is going to make me go blind for a second. Well, I like that. I like the sound of that. Also, though, have you ever had horseradish on smoked fish based spreads? Like mm. on a like a smoked trout or a, or a, or like a baked salmon kind of spread. I don't know that I have. Yeah. I mean, I've had, obviously I've had like the wasabi uh, in uh, in sushi, mm-hmm. uh, which you know that that's an example of the, the horseradishy type flavor going you know super well with uh, with with fish flavors. So I imagine it would be amazing. It's very good. The uh, local restaurant here in town, uh, the General Mirror, is kind of like a, a New York deli-style place. They do like a, a baked salmon spread with horseradish on top. It's now, delicious. Now, speaking of putting sauerkraut on dogs, though, I, I bet other traditions uh, that are similar to sauerkraut, uh, say kimchi, would be oh, amazing on a hot dog. Absolutely, yeah. You know, kimchi is good on everything. But anyway, I, I guess one thing that we should realize from this history is that if there's one feature – we most often think of as necessary for ketchup, it probably is that it's a tomato-based sauce, and this is just historically not the case. Uh, it's it, Tomato-based ketchup is a particularly popular variety of ketchup that achieved dominance over time. Now, we were already alluding to them earlier, but uh, when you talk about ketchup, you got to talk about one big brand name, right? Uh, there were originally tons of different producers of ketchup in general and tomato ketchup specifically uh, in the United States and in Britain. But in the early 20th century, one company established itself as sort of the the, the big troll in the arena, you know, <laughs> the, the dominant player in tomato ketchup manufacturing and sales. And of course, that was the Heinz company. Right. Yeah. This is one of those situations where you, you might think, oh, well, we just think of Heinz because they're the major company today. But no, it's like it, it, it's impossible to separate the history of ketchup from the separate from the, the history of Heinz. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, historian uh, Gabriella Patrick uh, points out that during the 1800s, when Heinz, uh, uh, the Heinz company, uh, uh, you know, came to life, uh, ketchup was made out of all the aforementioned ingredients, uh, you know, the, from the, the anchovies to the mushrooms, but also grapes. That was an additional ingredient they included hmm. here. Uh, uh, she included here. So it's, it's uh, you know, also important to note that up until till Heinz, this was not something you just, you know, exclusively bought at a store. Or ketchup was something that was also just made in the home, and it uh, you know, and it was no matter what the ingredients, generally more of a watery substance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this this idea of like the thick ketchup is uh, is largely a product of uh, of Heinz, and uh, and we can largely look to Heinz as the as, as the originator of this characteristic. And they would go on to make a big deal about that thickness. I want to talk about that in a bit. So Heinz focused in on on tomato sauce, sugar, vinegar, and spices, and then they made it thick. They made it uh, uh, as thick as you're probably accustomed to, thick in a way that it wasn't made in the home, and thick in a way that you know, certainly lends itself to certain usages uh, that uh, you know you wouldn't be able to get out of just uh, you know this watery substance. Yeah, it would be less appealing probably to say squirt on top of a hot dog, like yeah. if it's watery, it would just kind of like soak into the bun, maybe. Uh, but yeah, uh, or to or to dip fries in for that matter. Um, so H.J. Heinz Company had existed for decades, and they, they've been selling tomato ketchup since 1873. And Heinz remained the largest producer of ketchup throughout the 20th century. It was flanked by competitors like Hunt's and Del Monte. One interesting historical intersection, I thought, is uh, between the Heinz Company and a book that I was talking about in our summer reading episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind recently. Uh, and that that concerns the push for pure food and drug laws in the United States by the chemist Harvey Washington Wiley and others. Uh, so in 1906, when the U.S. Congress passed the Pure Food and Drug Act, a lot of industrial food producers would have been using preservatives like formaldehyde and borax and stuff, <laughs> stuff that, that uh, Wiley was very against. And one major beneficiary of this act Act, apparently was Heinz, since I was reading a New York Times article that mentions that uh, they had a method to sterilize and bottle ketchup at scale without the use of toxic preservatives. And, and because they already had this method at a plant, I believe it was in Pennsylvania, um, that they, they benefited from the passage of this law. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue our discussion of uh, what is essentially the, the modern history of ketchup. All right, we're back. So we've been talking about how, in a way, tomato ketchup is already something that has a global culinary history. It came from Asian cuisine originally and then was uh, something that uh, British cooks tried to recreate and then spread to America, had tomatoes incorporated. Uh, But today, tomato ketchup is not just a regional favorite condiment. It is a huge global manufacturing success. It spread to countries all over the world, uh, especially alongside fast food franchises. And Andrew F. Smith notes that as of 2013, Americans purchase 10 billion ounces of ketchup every year, which works out to about three full bottles for every person in the country. That's a (laughs) lot of ketchup. That is uh, that is that's more than my household. Well, that's that's more than my household's uh, you know purchase of ketchup bottles. But uh-huh. I don't know when you start looking at ketchup consumed elsewhere, maybe it, maybe it is accurate. I'm not sure. Yeah, for for the whole world and not just America, sales top 840 million 14 ounce bottles a year. 
the Heinz company alone claims that they sell 650 million bottles of ketchup a year, and they also claim in addition to that – to sell 11 billion single-serve plastic packets of ketchup every year. <laughs> that means about 1.5 ketchup packets per human on Earth. Wow. Now, another fact about Heinz ketchup specifically, we're all familiar with the Heinz ketchup bottle, the glass bottle that's on the table at the restaurant. Uh, if you've ever fought the battle of rheology against the slow-pouring ketchup stuck up in uh, in a glass Heinz bottle, apparently uh, we, we were alluding to this earlier, the slow pour of Heinz ketchup is something Heinz used to specifically boast about in ads for their product, resting on the logic that a thick, slow-pouring ketchup was, you know, it's higher quality. It means it's made for more tomatoes. Well, interesting. I could see how that messaging would stick to the, you know, the experience of the thick ketchup. I mean, they've really got ads about it. I've got a link to one in here that's an old TV ad of theirs that's got this, like, jazz music playing, and <laughs> they say, like, for the slow pour. <laughs> I don't know if there were like – were there fast-pouring ketchups at the time that just didn't make the cut over well, the years? Well, I'm guessing like your waterier ketchups. The, yeah. You know, the more – essentially more traditional ketchups are coming out as a, as a water. Um, or also maybe it's a – I wonder if there were cases where uh, restaurants were cutting their ketchup with water. Mm, yeah, that could be true. I wonder if some still do that. Uh, but the, so there was a claim made directly by the Heinz company that I found recently that they apparently still enforce slow pour as one of the quality control metrics of their ketchup. Quote, ketchup exits the iconic glass bottle at .028 miles per hour. If the viscosity of the ketchup is greater than the speed, the ketchup is rejected for sale. <laughs> uh, so this works out to about 2.46 feet per minute or about 1.25 centimeters per second. So they claim they reject a batch if it flows faster than that. But what if it flows slower? Also, at what temperature? I, so many rheology questions about ketchup. Well, I, I, I imagine these are insider details that, um, that the ketchup testers would be privy to. Yeah. But here's the thing. What happens uh, – we've all had this experience. Or, well, I don't know if everyone does because now we have so many squirt bottles of ketchup. Right. But I, I feel like a lot of us have had that experience where you're trying to get the ketchup out of the bottle and it won't come out. What are you supposed to do? Yeah, Heinz claims if you're trying to get the ketchup out of the glass bottle and it's stuck, the best method to get it flowing is to uh, apply a firm tap to the spot on the neck of the bottle where there's, there is a number 57 embossed on the glass. Hmm. Now, I was looking at a, an article here that, uh, that also deals with the, the, the inside um, business of ketchup production at Heinz. Uh, NPR's All Things Considered ran a great story just earlier this year titled, Meet the Man Who Guards America, America's Ketchup. Ketchup by uh, by Dan Charles. He's like the knight at the end of the Last Crusade, you know, who's mm -hmm. there standing. Is I have waited for you to come and take the ketchup recipe, but you must be worthy. Yes, and that individual is uh, Kraft Heinz ketchup master. That's his title, Hector Azorno. And uh, that's, what the, that's who the story deals with uh, and profiles. And it's a wonderful look at the modern state of ketchup and Heinz' global approach to, to ketchup. Um, so uh, Osorno points out that their ketchup's taste has remained constant. The Heinz taste has remained constant, but that the exact recipe differs from market to market. Mm -hmm. And this, becomes a, this became an issue a few years ago, apparently, uh, as they had to come up with a recipe to satisfy all of Europe. Despite the fact that Germans prefer a ketchup with more of a vinegary taste and the British prefer uh, a, a ketchup with more of a spicy taste. Hmm. 
And while uh, Osorno doesn't spill any secrets, he points out that the American recipe had to change at one point in the recent past to reflect shifts in, well, he's not very specific, shifts in flavor, shifts in ingredient. Yeah, it sounds like there was a recipe change in order to course correct after some unintended shift in flavor of the American version over time. And I wonder what that would be. I mean, if they weren't changing the ingredients, but the flavor of the ketchup was changing, I would have to think that would be due to the changing flavor of the the tomatoes that were going into it because you wouldn't expect like the vinegar or the sugar or anything to be changing flavor. Yeah, and tomato crops are certainly susceptible to a number of factors, uh, and ultimately their flavor is, is uh, subject to these factors, and that includes emerging diseases, nitrogen rates, and, of course, climate. Mm-hmm. And then you have post-harvest uh, decisions as well regarding storage and transport that c- could potentially factor into it. I mean, it, it's easy to think about the simplicity of ketchup, but it's certainly when you're talking about a massive uh, company creating ketchup for the world. Mm-hmm. That is a complex operation with a lot of moving parts. Yeah. And, uh, and so it's no surprise that Heinz really impacted American commercial agriculture and food processing in general. Uh, there's, a, there's an article um, on Smithsonian.com from, uh, by Amy Bentley titled How Ketchup Revolutionized How Food is Grown, Processed, and Regulated from mm-hmm. 2018. And I want to read a quick quote from it. Quote, innovations in tomato breeding and mechanical harvester technologies driven in part by demand for the condiment helped define modern industrial agriculture. In the 1960s, UC Davis scientists developed a mechanical tomato harvester. Around the same time, plant geneticists perfected a tomato with a thick skin and a round shape that could withstand machine harvesting and truck transport. This new tomato was arguably short on taste, but the perfect storm of breeding and harvesting technology from which it emerged allowed for a steady supply of tomatoes that kept bottlers and canners in business. Nearly all of the tomatoes produced for sauces and ketchup are products of this moment, as are many other fruits and vegetables produced in the U.S. So think about that. The invention of Heinz tomato ketchup by food scientists led to essentially the reinvention of the tomato itself. Yeah, and you see this come through. I mean, have you ever wondered why if you get a tomato at the grocery store, it tastes nothing like a really amazing heirloom tomato grown in a garden or by, mm-hmm. a, you know, by a small farmer or something? Like the uh, the the garden tomato has so much more flavor. It's it's unbelievable the difference. And I think a lot of that has to do with facts about what kinds of, uh, you know, what is selected for when you're creating a grocery store tomato, which is probably similar to a, an industrial tomato. It's tomatoes that have to be able to survive the harvesting and transport process and then be appealing in whatever form they're, they're sold. And so, for example, like gro- tomatoes you buy at the grocery store – are probably a big thing that's being selected for in the breeding process is just them not getting crushed in being harvested and shipped to the store. Yeah, so if you have given up on tomatoes, you think you don't like tomatoes and you're basing that mostly on grocery store tomatoes, then you really should try, you know, if you have the opportunity to, you know, try an heirloom tomato, try a farmer's market tomato and uh, and, and see if that doesn't uh, give you something a little different. I will say also a very good compromise if you, you know, a lot of people don't have, they can't make it out to the farmer's market mm-hmm. or it's not the right time of year or whatever. If you're looking for a compromise, try cherry tomatoes or oh, little, yeah. little grape tomatoes. I think those tend to be the best variety of tomato that you can get at a large-scale grocery store. 
So speaking of grocery stores, today Heinz sells about 70% of America's ketchup. Uh, and yes, the product is largely a monolith, but, but they and other ketchup makers have shaken things up. They've experimented with new concepts. And a big part of this is that the very international world that ketchup emerged from has kind of come back to challenge it in uh-huh. some ways. Um, you know, they're, you know, and in some cases, these products are very ketchup-like in their profile. I mean, consider a blessed uh, sriracha sauce or or a holy uh, gochujang sauce, the, the Korean uh, ketchup-like sauce. I love gochujang. I love it. Yes. It's, it's, it's so good. I, I've been using it. Um, and I started off, of course, just using it, uh, you know, like on a bibimbap kind of a bowl. But now I mm-hmm. keep using it on things that, uh, uh, that are not even necessarily Korean just because it's, just, it's so good. And, in, and it is kind of like Korean ketchup. In fact, if you do an Amazon search for, quote, Korean ketchup – you will bring up tons of Gogochan, uh, and, and uh, as well as a sponsored Heinz ad uh, at the very top. <laughs> you know, here, here's one good uh, thing you can make in your home if you want something really exciting to dip your tater tots in or whatever. Mm-hmm. Just make yourself some gochujang mayonnaise. Ooh, yeah, mix it up together. Oh. And then there are also changes to what, uh, you know, in what we want out of ingredients in our processed foods. So uh, I, I feel like when I was a kid, you know, you were pretty much guaranteed that your, your Heinz ketchup or your, any kind of ketchup you would buy off the shelf was probably going to have high fructose corn syrup in it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the consumer demands have shifted uh, in many ways away from that. So just a qu- quick glance at, he- at the Heinz website, you'll see that they have a, a number of varieties uh, available. You can get your no salt added, your no sugar added. Added, your organic, your simply ketchup, which is a no GMO ingredients, no high fructose corn syrup version of the product. They have a honey and reduced sugar sweetened uh, version. They have an added veggies version <laughs> that is 25% added veggies, uh, they claim, with carrots and butternut squash. Um, which is interesting, getting away from the idea of just tomatoes, at uh-huh. least sneaking some other vegetables in there. And then they also have hot and spicy, jalapeno, and sriracha tomato ketchup. Do they make one out of oysters and walnuts and mushrooms? Not yet, but who knows? You know, maybe like Heinz Britain will be the, yeah. <laughs> will be the next big brand. Old and, school ketchup. Yeah. And then, of course, there are those ketchup slices we mentioned earlier. Ugh. I'm sorry. I shouldn't hate. I'm sure they're fine. I, I would try. I have just had. Not, I have not had the opportunity to try one. Now, in terms of the future of ketchup, well, I mean, it's hard to predict everything uh, with ketchup. I mean, look at the robot ketchup. Let's <laughs> see, cyborg ketchup, nano I'm, ketchup, I'm failing. Yeah. Well, we've already taken ketchup uh, as well as mustard and various uh, you know other condiments into space. Uh, in, into um, uh, you know low G environments, orbital environments, and uh, and it really makes sense because take salt and pepper for instance. You can have salt and pepper on your food uh, in space, but it has to be in the liquid form. Oh you yeah, you can't have a, a you can't have a grind your own pepper in space or use a salt <laughs> just shaker. Go everywhere. Yeah. yeah, it would be it would be a risk to the, the environment. Uh, you know, to the machinery. You might never have thought about this as a one of the weird things about eating food in space, but food does not fall in yeah. space. So like you can't put something on your food by like just dumping it out on top. Uh, liquids, you have to like get them to adhere to your food if yeah. you want them to, to stick. And or, therefore, a thick ketchup yeah. is ideal for a, a low G or zero G environment. I mean, in a, in a sense, a ketchup uh, w- was destined to go into space. It, f- it foretold space travel. <laughs> 
I think, in some respects. Uh-huh. So it's, it's reasonable to assume ketchup will continue to follow us into space and to other planets even. And to flavor the spice melange. Yeah. Uh, however, here on Earth, uh, you know, we're dealing with challenges uh, here, uh, you know, different challenges, uh, you know, but challenges such as a changing climate, a warming Earth. And so companies like Heinz uh, and, and, and other, really any major agricultural uh, uh, group are having to turn to sustainability efforts uh, to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And, then there, and then there are additional sustainability efforts that, uh, that others are urging them to take on. Uh, I was looking at how climate change is impacting an American icon, Heinz Ketchup, which was from Harvard Business School's HBS Digital Initiative from 2016. And basically it uh, discusses how ketchup depends on tomatoes and and tomatoes are subject to crop shortages and uh, the resulting increased costs as well as the challenges of decreased water availability. Mm-hmm. So basically they point out, yeah, companies like Heinz have a number of sustainable sustainability initiatives already in place and they could stand to uh, take a few more uh, in order to – safeguard the world's, uh, you know, ketchup reserves for a future uh, that is going to deal with, uh, you know, a rapidly changing climate. I can imagine global ketchup shortages having uh, ex- profound negative effects. Yeah. Now, in, in terms of flavor, though, I, I don't know. It's kind of kind – of, we already see, a, you know, a diversification of ketchup uh, to a certain extent. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, I mentioned the examples from the Heinz website. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe we'll see. Maybe we'll see. You know, more savory ketchups. Maybe return of, of, of you know more, more vinegar-based ketchups. Maybe those will become more trendy. Let's see what's going to be made more abundant by climate change. Maybe algae, algae-based ketchup. Yeah. But also another thing to keep in mind is if if we're talking about like changes in uh, you know the foods that we have available to ourselves, is, is we're forced to consider say more insect based uh, protein sources, like that sounds like a place for ketchup if you ask me. Yeah. You know? um, well, in in getting picky kids used to new foods, they they say ketchup can be helpful. And so maybe if the adults of America are the picky kids you're trying to get used to entomophagy, uh, ketchup could play a role there. Yeah. I mean, think of it. If, you're, if, you're, if I say in the future we're going to have to eat more bugs and you think, ooh, well, then let me rephrase that. In the future, we'll have to eat more bugs with ketchup. In the future, there will be various protein-based shapes that you can dip in ketchup. Yeah. I mean, that sounds fine. I mean, that's basically what we have now at most. (laughs) This is always my argument for um, certainly imitation meats, Mm -hmm. uh, but also for uh, insect-based protein uh, uh, substances, is that we already have a situation where the meat has a very ambiguous flavor, if it even has a flavor at all. Uh-huh. And then we're depending so heavily on the fact that it's fried, on the fact that it's then dipped in ketchup or, you know, some other um, sauce, yeah. uh, but probably ketchup. Then, you know, why, why not have a more sustainable uh, uh, substance at the heart of that? Why does, the, why does the burger in many of these cases need to be made from a cow, given the environmental costs of that cow, when it could be it could be anything because the the, the burger the fast food burger just really does not depend upon the flavor of the patty. Say hello to the cricket Big Mac. Yeah, and really this gets back to the the uh, the ancient history of the sauce. Thinking of the sauce not so much as this luxury as this thing that makes a nice thing nicer, 
but perhaps a thing that can make an unpleasant thing edible, mm-hmm. you know, uh, or, or, you know, something that is going to add not uh, just a fun spice, but a necessary spice to life. Surely. All right. So there you have it. Uh, the invention of ketchup. Now, obviously, uh, we'd love to hear from listeners about this episode because most of you have probably had ketchup. And, uh, and, and many of you have been exposed to perhaps strange uses of ketchup in your own life, or you've traveled around and you've got to try, uh, maybe you have some experience sampling ketchups in different markets in different countries. I want to hear from the people who have never had ketchup, I never tried it once, <laughs> right in. I don't know if that's possible. I would love to hear from that human being. Um, but I will be surprised when we actually hear from them. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Invention, head on over to inventionpod.com. And, yeah, there, some of these are food-based, but we have most of them are more technology-based. Mm-hmm. Uh, though, as we've discussed here, you cannot discuss the history of food without discussing the history of technology. Food preparation is a human technology. Food is technology. It's yeah. not, not technology just because you eat it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the product of technology, <laughs> at least. I don't know. Uh, depends how you, you pull apart the terms. But at any rate, uh, we've, had a, we've had a few food-related topics. So we have mm-hmm. the episode on chopsticks, of course. Uh, uh, on uh, um, pooping automata. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine we'll return to, to other food-based uh, topics in the future as we well. We did bread and toast. Bread and toast, yes. Another key, uh, key advancement in uh, human culinary technology. And now we have ketchup to put on top of that. Um, but, hey, if you want to support this show, the best thing you can do is uh, make sure you have subscribed. And wherever you get the show, make sure you have rated and reviewed it because that helps us out as well. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, to let us know that you've never once tried ketchup, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.